Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Welcome to episode four of Still Watching Falcon and the Witch Soldier. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. And today on the podcast, we will be discussing the latest episode, episode four, The Whole World is Watching. This week, you'll also get not one, but two interviews. That's right. We've got longtime Marvel producer Nate Moore. He's fantastic. He's worked at Marvel for a really long time, and he has a lot to say about the Marvel process and about this show specifically. And we also have Falcon and the Winter Soldier series director, Kari Skoglund, who has some great stuff to say about the Zemo cut and Madripoor and a bunch of other things. So there will be back-to-back interviews before our pal Anthony Bresnikin joins us in the very end of the episode to get a little geeky about some comic book stuff. But first, we have a still-watching announcement for you. We have decided which show we're watching next. Richard, do you want to tell the people what we're watching? Yeah, we're go- we're, go- we're going back to HBO. <laughs> uh, and um, this young actor called Kate Winslet is in a show. Big, big, big break for her uh, called Mayor of Easttown. Easton? Easttown. There's a real Easton, Pennsylvania. This is set in Easttown, Pennsylvania. Um, and it's a murder mystery. So we're kind of going back to like the undoing territory where we can speculate about who done it. Who done it? All right. Okay. So um, that's it. That, that episode will come out uh, April 18th which is a Sunday. That's when uh, Mayor of Easttown is debuting on HBO. And then you will have a podcast episode to go with it. There will be just a couple weeks when Falcon and the Winter Soldier and Mayor of Easttown overlap. So if you're like a Marvel diehard and you're here for Marvel, don't be alarmed if you see something else in the feed. Hey, you can even join us if you want to. But we'll have sort of double episodes for a couple weeks and then it'll just be all Mayor all the time. And if you're a superhero fan... The great Gene Smart from Watchmen is in Mayor of Easttown. So it, there's and a ton of synergy. Non-Quicksilver himself, Evan Peters. So oh, d- Exactly. Know. Yeah. So even an even more relevant thing to uh, <laughs> this spring. 
He's he's playing uh, Ralph Boner, I believe is his name, in, in Mare of Easttown. Anyway, that's, that's what we're doing next. Um, so before we get into our analysis of this episode, episode four, uh, Richard, do you have any emails you want to share with us? Yeah, we got, as always, a ton of good emails, but we picked a couple that I thought would be interesting to talk about. Um, the first one is from Kevin. He writes... Uh, Am I the only one who has noticed that Baron Zemo has basically been ter- basically been turned into bad guy Batman? It wasn't super obvious in Civil War, the movie that he debuts in. But we did see he was motivated into action by the death of his parents. Did they wear pearl necklaces in Sokovia? And relied on his intellect to defeat people with actual powers. But episode three of Falcon and the Winter Soldier leaned all the way into it. Now he's wealthy with a hand-to-hand combat, uh, end-to-hand-to-hand combat expert and even has an old butler who organizes stuff for him. The only thing left is to find out his mom's name was Martha. Anyway, please tell me I'm not the only one who sees this. I see it now. <laughs> can I can I echo that with another email that I was going to yeah. save to chat uh, to Anthony about? But so Mark wrote in with this question about Zemo because uh, he says, does, does the decision to reveal in Falcon Winter Soldier that Zemo has been the wealthy baron of the comics all along undermine some of the bootstrappy ethos in Civil War, specifically that a person need only, quote unquote, experience and patience to accomplish anything? There's not much in Civil War that would explicitly slot Zemo into one wealth strata over another aside from the vast riches it would take to travel the world, stay in fancy hotels, and procure explosives. But it seemed to me that the Russos had intentionally given him a working-to-middle-class vibe to drive home the idea that, with proper motivation, anyone could rip the Avengers apart. Doesn't giving Zemo seemingly limitless resources and a penchant for Machiavelli and Falcon the Winter Soldier kind of diminish that idea? Um, And I liked Mark Zemo because I... I had always kind of thought of Zemo that way as sort of like an ordinary man pushed to an extraordinary extreme because of, of personal loss. Uh, and he is definitely something, a, a fur collar, uh, dancing meme, something else a little bit in this show. And I'm not mad about it, but it does feel like a, a different twist on the character. What do you think, Richard? Well, he's wearing a Bane coat while mm-hmm. kind of being Batman. I mean, we don't talk about, the other side of the street on this podcast. We don't talk about DC, <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's funny to watch this show t- take a character who in civil war from, if memory serves me um, was like, kind of like you said, like a, a sort of serious or attempted a serious kind of accounting of, or, or thinking over like collateral damage of all the kind of heroic action we we'd seen, you know, and, and, um, there, there was a real um, weight to his villainy, which is something when I first saw that movie, I really appreciated because it didn't feel yeah. like some outside entity from afar troubling the waters for one movie and then leaving. He actually kind of was like reckoning with the whole past films, you know? Yeah. Um, and I still think that's happening in this show. They have, I think, for the sake of like, you know, to try to ingratiate him into the fold of the hero side of things. Yeah, they've made him a little funnier, quippier, a little more dashing, you know, with private jets and big fur coats and all that stuff. Um, And I think, you know, maybe a little bit is lost in his characterization with that. But I think you also have Carly really emerging as a similar voice to that. Um, And so... You know, I think we also we certainly saw in this episode Sam saying I agree with you to Carly, um, 
And I th- would imagine Zemo does too. So I think that spirit is still there, even if his character has shifted a bit more into um, kind of Loki-esque anti-hero comic relief. Well, Zemo would and he wouldn't, right? Because he's, v- he's vehemently opposed to super soldier serum. And he also well, right. has this, yeah. And he also has this like really interesting, it's, it's just, we get two different takes on like what happens to someone when they take the super soldier serum, right? Because, um, Zemo says to Sam, like, whatever you saw that you admired in Carly, like, she's gone. And it, that reminded me of like, uh, in the world of Buffy Vampire Slayer, like, angel versus angelus or whatever like once the demon takes over you the human that you thought you knew is gone right and they're and it's just a demon wearing their face so that's that's zemo's interpretation of the super soldier serum uh lamar rest in peace uh says to john uh it it just enhances who you are power just makes a person more of themselves and he says you consistently make the right decision in the heat of battle we sort of see that play out very poorly uh, to to put it extremely mildly, at the end of this episode, but those are like sort of two different. T- like, does the super soldier serum enhance who you actually are, or does it turn you into something more monstrous? And I think the answer is somewhere in the middle, where it's like if you have a single flaw in you, and that's that's the that's the beauty of Steve Rogers is that he's a flawless diamond, right? But like, if you have a single flaw in you, it will overtake. Um, your better instincts if you take the super soldier serum. Does that make sense? I think you meant to say flawless dime piece, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, No, it does make sense. And I think, um, uh, you know, there are these, there have long been these questions about not just the Marvel universe, but like superheroes in general, this kind of question of like, I keep mentioning it, but sort of objectivist Ubermensch kind of ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, and like who actually deserves that mantle to power. Um, and I, I mean, I think Zemo or whoever else would argue no one. Um, but you know, I, I guess, I mean, it's kind of a little bit like alcohol, <laughs> you know, people are like in vino veritas, but also like, is that really true? Does, 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 does drinking, um, reveal who you are or do you kind of, does it, it tease out some things, but also change who you are? Um, so I don't think that they're trying to make a reference to alcohol with super serum, but like, you know, it's that, it's that thing of like who, what is like the id inside us and, 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 and how does it, if it were ever to manifest outwardly, what would that be? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's kind of, I, I think that this episode in particular starts to get into some, I think, genuinely interesting questions in the, within the Marvel world of like power and, you know, extrajudicial policing and all that stuff. And, uh, and, and judicial policing. I mean, you know, like, I think there is, there are a lot of parallels between John's arc in this episode and, uh, policing in America. Um, and you know, does the badge and the gun reveal who you are or does it provoke something new that is still, I mean, working off of something internal, but like, I don't know, I think it mutates. Um, of your two metaphors there, I give the uh, law enforcement one five stars and the alcohol one like three stars. Three stars, uh, except I'll add an extra two stars because that blue super soldier serum looks like blue curacao, something I would never take personally. Um, the, not since college. <laughs> not since college. Not since that one night. Um, Sam, I, I think this idea of like Steve being this one in a million kind of guy um, 
is something interesting to explore. And this idea that Sam immediately says, like, no, I would not take the serum, like, instantly says that when Zemo asks him. And I think it's because Sam acknowledges his own humanity. He's like, I know that I'm not Steve Rogers. I'm, I'm, it doesn't make me not great, but like, I'm not Steve Rogers and I've got something in me, you know what I mean? That I wouldn't want to see blown up, uh, by taking the serum. That was my interpretation sort of of that, of, mm-hmm. of his rejection of that. Like he knows who he is. And it's not, it's not that he's bad or less than Steve. It's just Steve is little, like freakishly a good person is <laughs> the whole thing. So, you know. Yeah. Um, all right. What other emails you got for me, Richard? So, uh, Carla writes to us, um, something I've noticed in the first three episodes of Falcon and the Winter Soldier is that there seems to be a theme of people not recognizing Sam. So far, it's happened in every episode, the bank worker, the police officers, and the people he fooled while undercover as the smiling tiger. When they hear that he's Falcon, they know who that is. So it's not a case of just not knowing his famous identity. People always seem to recognize Avengers in the movies and shows. And he was an official Avenger for the same amount of time as Wanda from the end of Age of Ultron to Civil War. And in WandaVision, the people in S.W.O.R.D. easily recognized her even in black and white in a sitcom outfit. I wonder if this is another thing Sam has to consider if he chooses to take on the mantle of Captain America. It's a name that will make people take notice, and he would be much more recognizable to those who, who support him and those who are angry about a black man being Captain America. Um, yeah, I think the issue of Sam being recognized and not recognized is definitely an intentional sort of thematic mm-hmm. pattern. Yeah. Um, and, you know not to get too far afield, but I think there, you know, the sort of disconnect between, um, you know, someone might say, Oh, well, you know, there are black celebrities. There was a black president. So like racism is fine is solved, you know, um, which kind of demands that in order to be treated as a somewhat equal member of society, you have to be like rich, famous, accomplished, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, 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 it sort of, it, 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 you know, it, it prizes that kind of celebrity and model minority status uh, mm. without actually addressing the the real issue uh, pertaining to those people and everyone else. Um, and I think that Sam is kind of existing interestingly in that duality um, because he's like a, you know, maybe second string ish Avenger uh, who is famous for his goggles and his wings, but like out of costume is treated a certain way until people find out that he is. It's like, Oh, Oh, the, you know, the scene with the police, like, Oh no, no, you're not just a regular black man who we would have tr- continued to treat like that. Right. Now we're going to stop. And I think that duality and that dichotomy uh, is definitely, definitely deliberate. Yeah. And uh, you had mentioned before we started recording that I, I was like, was there an instance in this episode? And you pointed out the the moment where John Walker gets approached for uh, a signature and an autograph and, um, uh, Battlestar doesn't. <laughs> and uh, just this idea of like, yeah, Captain America more recognizable and maybe the white hero more quote unquote recognizable uh, and whatever commentary the show is trying to make about that. Um, I think it's well, really and interesting. The people have, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And no, the people have taken the time to get to know what Steve Rogers looks like, you know, yeah. that, that, that they, that they've given him, they've afforded him the sort of full consideration of his humanity to like remember his fucking face. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that is not the case with Sam. And yeah. I think that's definitely, definitely pointed. Excellent. Any other emails? Uh, yeah. One more. Um, 
from Davey. Uh, Davey writes, uh, I was listening to the latest episode on Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I'd love to hear more about, and, uh, about what you thought about Madripoor. Because I had some issues watching it, that they've introduced an entirely fictional nation in Asia and decided to make it run and operated by criminals, almost like some kind of lawless area, which is populated entirely by criminals. It just felt a little wrong to me, almost like an anti-Wakanda, where instead of an African utopian society, we get the worst ideas about Asia in one country and then populate it pretty much entirely with non-Asian characters. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I guess I had asked you about Madripoor because I thought the idea of a sort of lawless pirate city state was interesting and hadn't really th- at the time thought about like all of the other implications of that. Like they didn't set this in like an Island off the coast of Australia or something, you know, like th- this is, de- this was deliberately in Southeast Asia and, um, and I guess has been in the comic books. And I was yeah. talking to a, a friend about it um, earlier this week and she was like, Oh yeah, that, that stuff is like messed up. Like that whole idea and the execution of it is, um, really clumsy, especially for a season of television that is aiming to be, uh, uh, at least in some ways, addressing issues of you know racial injustice. Yeah, I I thought the um like the visuals of Madripoor were um amazing, and I, I liked the idea of like the low city, high city. Like I liked I liked all of that, and especially if they're establishing it as a location that we're going to go to in the future. Um, but it wasn't until um a little later when someone pointed out to me that it does fall into that classic um, genre trope of having like, uh, of, of you oftentimes in sci-fi films and television, right? A future city will be Asian influenced. That's like a way to code futuristic into a, a space. And then, and then oftentimes there are no actual Asian people in that location. The the main uh, culprit here I'm thinking of is Blade Runner, both Blade Runner films. Yeah. Um, there was a yeah. lot of conversation around uh, the release of Blade Runner 2046 and, and, you know, why are there no Asian people in this very Asian city? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have a great answer for that. I think if I had to guess about the way that they're going to use Madripoor in the future, I would say this will not, be the case going forward but um i don't i don't quite know what the thinking was in this episode i we i did talk to carrie uh Scoglin, the director about the creation of Mad- madripoor and, and all that went into it so you'll hear her insights into that a little later in this episode and i just want to kind of head off uh, some emails i know are going to arrive Yes, listeners, I did just hear Joanna say Blade Runner 2046 and not 2049, and I am as appalled as you are. Ah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Dave. So funny, as I was saying it, I was like, oh, I remember all the numbers. I'm just going to say them with full confidence. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you for preventing those emails. Okay. Uh, so those are the emails that we have for this episode. You can always email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. So let us dig into the episode a little deeper. Uh, all right. Let's start with the beginning, which is... Sebastian Stan, I'm sorry, crushing this opening sequence uh, in Wakanda where we see Bucky discover that he has been successfully deprogrammed um, with Io, uh, Florence Kasumba's character. Uh, I loved it. I loved his wig, which is way better than the wig they gave him in Infinity War. It was, I just, I was a big fan of this moment. Richard, how did you feel? Yeah, I mean, I like all that kind of... um... It's not spycraft, really, but that sort of 
brainwashy like the the, the 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 sequence of words that unlocks it like there's something really sinister about all that um and i thought that getting that little flashback that had been a you know a two of time that was alluded to in some of the movies uh was interesting and it nicely threaded in the kind of cliffhanger thing from last week's episode at the end of last week's episode to a, two scenes later in this episode uh where these wakandans come in and are like gonna put a stop to things you know and i I think it positioned them interestingly as both you know compassionate people who are helping this wayward guy who probably many other people would have just tossed out you know because he was a murderer and stuff um but also as uh as tough capable people who um, will not brook too much uh you know things threatening them i guess yeah, they've mentioned, you know, they keep mentioning Bucky's connection to Wakanda. And I think that um, I, I, wa- I have to wonder if we're going to see him return to Wakanda, like the only place where he's felt peace and stuff like that. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I spec- I can't remember if it was with you or with Anthony last week, but I was sort of speculating, you know, they're going to do a, a Wakanda Disney Plus show um, that I think centers a bit more on the Dora Milaje and I, which, which would be a reason why we're getting so much from them in this series. It's, it's another one of those ways in which Marvel <laughs> is sort of like looking, looking forward, right. Spinning off, constantly spinning off into other directions. Um, but I mean, they're fantastic in this episode. Uh, they're fantastic always, but like, I love to see them again. I love their choreography. I love that. Like when they spin the spears around their necks and like everything they do, they're amazing. They, uh, you know, and they just absolutely cleaned up uh, in their big fight scenes. So um, I'm so, so happy to see them here, but like, I'm wondering, like, are we going to see Bucky in the Wakanda show? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I would, you know, half of everything in a Marvel, anything is an ad for the next thing, uh, which genuine, generally I kind of roll my eyes at, but in this case, like I definitely want to see more of that. I think, um, you know, the, the sequel to black Panther is going to be a strange thing because of Chadwick Boseman's death. And just to see like where they take the story and who they focus on and all that. Um, but while we wait for that sort of sad thing, happy thing too, in some ways, um, I think that the prom- the promise of a of a show that really focuses on on these characters, Dora Milaje, you said, is it pronounced? It's they pronounce in the show they pronounce the e at the end of Milaje, so like Milaje, like Dora Milaje. Milaje, yeah. okay. Um, but I I thought you know not only you know sort of doing cool fight scenes and giving us this interesting flashback at the beginning of the episode, I think there was a really crucial moment uh, with. Uh, io um when she has really you know stopped john in his tracks uh really kind of embarrassed him well in his mind embarrassed him i don't think that she's thinking in those terms um and afterward he's kind of he's licking his wounds and he says they they don't even have superpowers or whatever you know whatever the line is about that super soldier serum yeah yeah and 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 i think that that moment of curdled sort of Mm -hmm. shame and anger, especially about the fact that it's a black woman who did this to him, a non-American person too, is a a real tipping point. And I think that that was a nice, quick kind of distillation representative sort of moment of, 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 of a lot of um, anger that we see, I think that motivates a lot of 
nationalist, white nationalist people in the country, in the real world, you know, um, that kind of indignity of, of the, the congressman yelling, you lie during Obama's first state of the union address as if he just couldn't abide this black person having authority over him or some, you know, whatever. Um, so I, I thought that was a really crucial, um, detail to have in the episode, um, that brought in a, a sort of new, avenue of discourse for this character's you know devolution into villainy i completely agree and i thought i thought um you know florence kasumba and all the all the actresses who were you know there was was that really cool moment where one of the other uh warriors picked up the shield uh and it just (laughs) like it looked great um looked better on her definitely yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) looked better on her than it did on uh has ever looked on john walker but um but yeah, that I love that description that you had, like curdled, um, like petulance, and and uh, I think Wyatt Russell, you know, I'm gonna give him a lot of credit. I think he's playing this part really well. It's it's a it's a guy that I hate, but he's doing a great job with it. I think. Yeah, I mean, in that way, like it, I was thinking about that too. Like it, it's, I don't want to say thankless because I'm sure for an actor it's an interesting thing to tuck into, but it is not at all a flattering role or performance. And I think that even, I think we talked about it in the first episode, like even the way he looks under the mask, like there's just something sort of off about it. He's a very handsome guy, but like it just, something about it like feels wrong. And, and Mm -hmm. I think that he's really, Wyatt Russell is really leaning into that and making us see quite chillingly that there is a human being there that is sort of being taken you know, whose like worst impulses and thoughts are, are sort of being brought to the fore. So it makes the villainy all that much more scary and palpable and real. Um, that like, he's just this like pathetic entitled person, you know, he's not some like space villain with weird motivations. Like, and I think that, that, that drives where his character is headed, uh, you know, it drives it home that much more. And I think, I think that why Russell is a big part of that. Let's talk about that ending really quickly. Um, I, I had a rather perturbing morning before I hopped on this call with you, uh, in that I was reading the Reddit boards as, as I often do. Um, just cause I, <laughs> what a way to well, start no, no, I, like, I, <laughs> I usually, I usually like reading the Reddit boards cause there's like a lot of like, you know, people with really deep bench of knowledge that, uh, can point me in the direction of things that I should research and stuff like that. Or, or, I like seeing all the questions that people are asking. So I kind of know what questions other people might be asking and stuff like that. So it's a really helpful. Usually this morning is a little creepy because, um, the boards that I was looking at, they were like, John Walker did nothing wrong. And I was like, Oh my God. So let's talk about this for a second. Uh, let's talk about the ending. Uh, this really disturbing ending. This, uh, this episode is called the whole world is watching. Um, uh, John Walker is caught on, you know, phone footage, after having juiced up as we expected, he probably was going to juice up. Uh, I believe he's decapitated that guy um, because there's a wide shot and the guy's chest isn't at first. I thought he was just sort of maybe caving his chest in just a light chest caving, but no, I think it was a decapitation. Um, and then we see that shot of him standing tall in the blood on the shield, which is um, a really stunning image. Um And I, so I was thinking about like, how did Steve Rogers react in a similar circumstance? So in Captain America, the first Avenger, I mean, we know he's no Steve Rogers, but in Captain America, the first Avenger, there are two instances where Steve like could have gone 
buck wild if he wanted to. One is when Erskine dies, like right after he gets the super soldier serum, um, handsome Hydra spy Richard Armitage uh, kills Stanley Tucci's Erskine. And and then there's this big chase through the city. And um, I rewatched that this morning. And like what Steve does is he, he like he dives underwater because Richard Armitage gets into like a little submarine boat thing. He dives underwater. He pulls him out and then he pulls him out of the water. And he's sort of like, who are you working for? And then Armitage uh, take like, activates a cyanide capsule in his tooth and dies that way. But Steve didn't kill him, right? And then later, when Bucky dies, um, Bucky falls off the train. And Steve had just knocked out a guy with his shield. who uh, Like, a Hydra guy is right inside the train by Steve. And Steve could have turned and taken his full anguish out on that guy but he doesn't he just cries for bucky he like he's just incapacitated with sorrow and then the last sort of parallel is in civil war when uh steve is fighting tony and uh with bucky and tony takes bucky's um arm off and steve uh, sort of beats him down and then stands over him and has a shield above him and there is this moment where you're like is steve rogers gonna kill Tony Stark, and then he just brings it down on the like on the arc reactor, powering the suit, and just powers him down, and drops a shield and walks away. And um, just thinking about all those moments and who Steve is and how he reacts and how John Walker reacts here, um, there's zero justification. I mean, just just in case anyone listening here was writing on that Reddit board this morning, there's zero justification. For what John Walker did to a man who was on his back and surrendering, do you know? So, right. Anyway, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, and I think the point, maybe that the show is making in this episode about all that is like Steve was a rare kind of thing. Yeah, and that like most people, if given that kind of thing, would be more like John. Do you think so? Okay, that's what the that's what some people on the boards are saying, and I. Okay. Yeah. I don't I, know. I don't, that makes I'm not me, saying that, that, me, that like, yeah. is okay. that we're supposed to agree with, you know, that we're supposed to be like, well, and he was right to do. I, I just mean, I think they're saying that like, this is such a tenuous, um, power that yeah. most people who are not sort of like freakishly decent, like Steve is, um, would abuse it. Um, and I think, you know, about that, the, the, I guess, decapitation scene, uh, which was not at all, you know, a proportionate response or whatever, um, mm-hmm. is, you know, everyone standing around filming it and looking sort of horrified to see Captain America do this incredibly violent, vindictive thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, some of that surprise and, and I think drama is coming from this idea of like, well, here is a lot of what America does just sort of nakedly exposed on camera. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think I think mm-hmm. the, the, it, it, it's I think it feels less like I can't believe that John Walker just took it to this next level. I think it's more the next level has the has already existed and it's just now being seen kind of nakedly in this very like, um, you know, uh, representative way. Um, and yeah, so I, I think, yeah, I, I, I don't agree that he was justified in doing that. But I do think that they're sort of making an argument that he is not at all alone in doing that. There is an, you know, earlier in the episode, John says to the Dora Milaje, you have the Dora Milaje have no jurisdiction here. And the question is what jurisdiction, uh, this is something 
some of our listeners were sort of battering, batting around this morning in, in a message board that I saw, but like what jurisdiction does Captain America have in Latvia? And like the, the partially the answer is he's working with the GRC, this like global entity, right? We saw him come out of a GRC van. Like we know he's working with them. So in theory, he does have some sort of like jurisdiction there, but at the same time it is, you know, I would agree with anyone who would say so a very American attitude to assume jurisdiction abroad uh, and deny other people jurisdiction abroad. Do you know what I mean? So, Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Um, The, uh, the additional pain of that, of that final moment there uh, is that, that, that flag smasher had earlier in the episode told Carly that, you know, he had been a fan of Captain America growing up. Uh, and then Captain America kills him. Uh, I will say the flag smashers. It's I'm having trouble really latching onto them. Part of it, I think, is because we keep um, we keep meeting new lieutenants briefly. Like we met a different lieutenant briefly last week. And he's in this episode, but we're supposed to be focusing on this guy whose name is Nico, by the way, who dies. Um, and, but we have only had like one scene with him and then he dies. And I think it would just be a little bit stronger if we knew these flag smashers other than Carly a bit better than we do. There is a rumor that, well, part of the original scripts, uh, there was a, um, there was going to be like a virus plot line with the flag smashers. In fact, like the production company behind Falcon, the winter soldier was called pandemic productions. Not kidding. Uh, that happened before COVID and then they scrapped it entirely and you can see why, but I have to wonder if maybe some of the flag smasher story got lost in scrapping that whole, uh, sort of biological weapon part of, of the series. Oh yeah. That's interesting. I kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're just, uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, all right. So let us talk about, well, I, I do actually want to circle back on something you said about Zemo and how they're making him more like dashing and all this sort of stuff and fun and, and the stuff with the Turkish delight. The thing with Zemo though, <laughs> is that I think this show is trying to lull us into a false sense of security around him. Right. Because yeah. here's what's really important to remember. He said in last week's episode, like, I don't mean to leave my work unfinished, meaning eradicating the super soldier serum. We saw him gleefully stomping on vials of blue curacao uh, in this week's episode. And um, that leaves a couple things left. That leaves John Walker. That leaves the Flag Smashers. That leaves Bucky, as Sam points out. And that leaves uh, Isaiah Bradley. And all of those people, I think, are in danger from Zemo. Because however nice he's been playing, he has one ideology that it reigns supreme for him, and that is the eradication of the super soldier serum and anyone who has taken it. So, um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about about that, about Zemo and what he might be up to? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some other... Alter- I mean, I think the, the, the joke about, like, I, did he just go El Chapo on us or whatever? Like, like they're recognizing that there is a whole other thing afoot here that we're not at least right now privy to. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious because I think that this episode, 
you know, especially this, this scene between this kind of long dialogue scene between Sam and Carly was about people on, you know, arguably different sides of things, but kind of realizing they're not, um, it was about sort of seeing that sort of closeness and ideology and starting maybe to bond against the bigger threat of, you know, <laughs> imperialist might. Um, and I just will be curious to see where Zemo factors into that, because again, I kind of think that Sam and everyone is more aligned in some ways with what Zemo thinks than they are now with what the sort of this agent of the U S government does. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's going to be like a tidy, you know, we're friends now ending. I think there's also some really interesting parallels that they're trying to draw between like as much as John Walker is different from Steve, the way in which Sam is similar to Steve, obviously, you know, they're not exactly the same, but um, the empathy that he has for Carly and, and the reminder to us that Sam was, you know, did like group therapy for veterans that that was his job. That's how we met him in winter soldier. And something that I think is interesting is that uh, in Endgame after like in the, in the midst of the, of the snap of the blip, Steve is working as a sort of grief counselor, um, sort of taking on what Sam did. And so I, I just liked that return to that as a really nice link between the two of them. Like this, this empathy, this, this, desire to see things from other others point of view um that sam definitely has running through him you know well right yeah exactly and like that is such a you know if anyone is going to do this ridiculous thing uh and dangerous thing uh they should at least have that you know (laughs) a capacity for some empathy what do you make of um in this in this show that is so specific about how it's talking about race um in america and elsewhere what do you make of the death of battlestar lamar in this episode i was thinking about that and i don't know how complicated the show is trying to be in that sort of like what that means but like this sense that sam was I think it's fair to say, at least in the terms of the movies, a sort of sidekick to Steve. And it's never talked about in the movies to my recollection about like, but like Steve, you know, this shining white Aryan, you know, defender of freedom, having a black man by his side could, in, you know, in, in as much as Captain America has been a propaganda tool, like a sort of sign of like, see, look, no, like everything is inclusive. And then Steve leaves and gets old and whatever. Uh, and then Sam doesn't get the gig, even though he, he kind of turns it down. And then they, they hire someone exactly like, well, at least appearance-wise, like Steve. Um, and then they just kind of reiterate that by giving him this. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if the government gave him the sidekick. But, like, you know, you know and, and then to have that guy die really unceremoniously and suddenly and just, like, you know... I think it I think it was kind of talking a little bit metatextually about the flimsiness of that trope of mm. of sort of showing a white character's decency by having them be adjacent to a person of color, mm. even though that person mm. of color really never gets their own sort of primacy or agency 
in the storytelling in the way that the white character does. And so I think, I don't know, I think yeah. there, were, there, there was some sort of, some sort of like reckoning or recognizing uh, of that sort of, you know, very problematic tradition of, you know, in movies uh, happening there. I don't know. Is that, am I like overreaching? No, I think, I think that's really interesting. I just, I, um, I, I really liked uh, the Lamar character and I, and I, I, I thought he had such tremendous presence in the series and I was actually really surprised that this happened. And um, this is kind of a classic fridging and at first I was like, when, when he first hit the pillar, I was like, no way would they do that to this character. I, like, I just didn't believe that that's what was happening and that it was. And I, I don't know. I, th- I think I'm still processing it. But I'm curious if, if people want to write in stillwatchingpod at gmail.com their thoughts on, on that moment. Um, I'd love to hear it because I, I think I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it. Yeah. And I think that people could probably uh, dig into it more thoughtfully than I just did. I mean, I, I, I think it's 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 partly just a a simple storytelling tool of like he needed this final kick in you know to get him into this new villainy arc or whatever but i think there is more there i think it was loaded from the get-go that they were paired up in a similar way to steve Mm -hmm. and sam um with you know the 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 black man in second position um Mm -hmm. and you know i I i think there's something deliberate happening there I think that's right. I do. Um, all right. Is there anything, I mean, this, I think this is like a really, uh, chilling, disturbing episode. Um, everything still feels like a little jangly to me in this series, but, um, something that you'll hear in my interview with Nate Moore is he talks about how episode five, he feels next week's episode really brings everything together. So I'm really interested Mm -hmm. to see how everything sort of fits, you know, neatly together. Um, Anything else you want to say about this episode, Richard? Well, it's technically about last week's episode, but they <laughs> okay. they put it in the previously on. Mm. When Sam says, it's Sam says it, I think. They're in Riga, a city on the Baltic Sea. <laughs> These people would know where Latvia is and what its capital is. They don't need to say that. These are globetrotting, yeah. you know, super people. Like, I, <laughs> I just find that line sort of, maybe I just because I like force myself 15 years ago to like learn all the capitals of Europe for some reason. Cause I was bored one day at work. Um, but like, I don't know that, that line just, <laughs> I think is funny. I think it's interesting that this whole episode takes place in Latvia. Well, as a, as a gro- as a globe trotting super person myself, I completely agree with you. I mean, I know where Latvia is. So, um, no, no, I, I, I thought, I thought that was a really, uh, odd line, but, but it, you know, it was cool. The locations that they had in this episode were really cool. And, 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 you know, you'll hear that in both the interviews I do actually, they talk about their, um, insistence on like shooting globally versus yeah. trying to, trying to fake going abroad. Do you know what I mean? Um, so let's get into my interview with Nate Moore first. Um, I just want to give some context for folks who don't know. Nate has been at Marvel since like almost the very beginning. He was brought on to manage something called the writer's program that they had, you know, back in the day where um, you, you got the genesis of Guardians of the Galaxy and Black Panther. Um, he was moved into sort of a bigger producing role um, as his time at Marvel went on. And he, you know, he is, he is a ma- the main producer on Black Panther um, and, and on this show. And so, um, he has a lot to say about Marvel and how it works. And, uh, and he's a true joy. He's part of something that's called the parliament at Marvel, which is a really fun, like, 
I don't know. It sounds kind of Illuminati at the same time, but really fun. He's part of like, I think it's like seven people who are called the parliament at Marvel and he's one of them. So let us hear from the great Nate Moore. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. So when do you recall when you were first aware that Falcon and the Winter Soldier was something that Marvel wanted to do? Yeah, it was pretty early on, honestly. We had seen their chemistry both on and off set on Civil War, which I was got to be a part of, and it was amazing. Um, in that, Mackie and Sebastian, A, just hit it off, and I think brought out different colors in each other that weren't necessarily expected, both as people and performers. Um, and so we knew there was something special there. And when Disney Plus began to be a real idea, it was one of the first things we pitched as like, we should do this as a show. And not because we had the idea of exactly what it was, but because we knew those two characters would play so well off each other that there'd be just sort of a natural chemistry. And television is so much more about characters than it is about plot anyway, frankly, right. that we didn't feel like, oh, we needed a big plot to hang the show on. We actually just needed a really good character dynamic that we could build upon. And I think the truth is the three first shows that are coming out were the three first ideas we had was Wanda and Vision because, oh my gosh, there's so much there, both even in publishing, I would say more so. Um, uh, Sam and Bucky, Falcon Winter Soldier, and then Loki. Uh, for different reasons, Loki, if you've ever been to a Comic-Con where Tom Hiddleston makes an appearance, you just sort of see what magic that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we were we weren't three for three and like, they're so great, but we were three for three. And the, the first three things we wanted to do were the first three things we did. Um, but yeah, Sam and Bucky was, was a product really of Sebastian and Mackie, you know? Can you, can you describe that? You, you say we pitched, are you pitching to the powers that be at Disney? Who's doing the pitching and something like that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, Kevin uh, and Lou and Victoria going to, Iger, frankly, and the and the Disney Plus team and and saying, oh, we understand you'd like us to do shows. What about these shows? And I, you know, our relationship with Disney has been really interesting over the years and that they have really allowed us to take the lead creatively as to what we want to do. They've never said you should do this or you shouldn't do that. So in pitching the show, they go, great. Like that's if you guys are excited, let's go make those shows. And that. I think in a good way puts the onus on us to make sure those shows are good because man, what better supportive partners could we have? We don't want to let them down by delivering a show that doesn't, you know, better the promise of what we've talked to them about in the room. Right. Right. Um, and I've talked to both Malcolm Spellman and Jack Schaefer at this point about what, what a head writer is on one of these shows, yep. but I'm really curious about your role. And I know that in the Marvel movie machine there is you know an assigned producer that's with mm -hmm. you know the project i know you've played that role before and i'm mm -hmm. wondering if there's a difference between playing that role in the movie universe versus the tv universe it's actually pretty similar uh but i would say i have less knowledge going into tv than i did in, in films you know and one of the great things about malcolm is he was so versed in how television was built from the ground up in ways frankly that i I don't know. And still, I still could learn a ton that even though I understood 
the story in the broader sense of what we wanted to tell and how it could fit into the other things in the MCU and even the legacy of the characters. Cause I'd been on winter soldier and civil war. I didn't know how to break a television show. Uh, and so for me, it was a bit of an education to sit with Malcolm and his team and figure out, Oh, like that's the rhythm. Oh, that's interesting. Cause my, my lizard brain just goes to, Oh, it's just a long movie. Right. But Malcolm's like, yeah, you can't do that. Like, you can't, there's no six hour movie for a reason. It won't sustain that way. You have to figure out the rhythms of the episode. Yeah. So, um, so it was, you know, I like to think I got to be kind of a sounding board and creative partner for Malcolm, but it was definitely me learning more than I was teaching. In terms of being sort of that bridge between Kevin, Victoria, and Lou and the head writer, what does that look like to you almost day to day? Yeah, it's, you know, I've been at Marvel now for 11 plus years, so I, I kind of have a pretty good understanding of, of what's going to get them excited, of things they might find problematic, and places where where we can stretch that don't seem intuitive. Because I think for Malcolm, coming into a place like Marvel, he has a lot of preconceived expectations about how it works and what he'll be able to do, and can I do this, and are they going to let us do anything like that? And the truth is, there's probably a lot more latitude than it may seem like from the outside. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of me being a security blanket for Malcolm saying, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. I I know you think that might seem controversial on the face of it because we haven't done it, but this isn't the team to not do something because we haven't done it. This is actually the team that goes, Oh, we haven't done that. Let's try that. Um, And so I think it was freeing for him to have somebody in the room every day who we could go, is that going to fly or not going to fly? And typically it was, yeah, that's going to fly if we can make it great. Um, and, and, I, and I do think then the pressure was less about how do I convince Marvel and just how do I make a good show? And, and I think that was helpful for Malcolm. At least I hope so. Yeah, and I imagine it saves a lot of time. You know, you, you hear a lot of head writers or, or showrunners, which is a different position, um, mm-hmm. at other TV studios, you know, having to toss out a bunch of things once they get network notes. And you're skipping that process where you have someone in the room who's like, I'm pretty sure I know what they're going to like, what they're not going to like. Yeah. We don't even even need to bother going down that road, you know. That's right. That's right. And and I do think we did get to skip some pitfalls because of that. Now, the truth is at Marvel, we are also notorious for like the, the, you know, eighth inning curveball. And this, this show is no different, but I think one of the ways that it works or at least doesn't completely frustrate creative people is that we're in it with them. We don't go, here's a curveball. Good luck. I hope you hit it. It's like, okay, curveball's coming, Malcolm. Let's huddle up and let me help you figure out how to crack this curveball, which, which again, I think helped Malcolm take the pressure off himself and go, okay, well, this is just a problem we're going to solve together and not like, oh, they've dumped a problem in my lap and left. Right. That's, I think, such a, a different position to put a writer in. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've heard with Falcon Witcher Soldier is there was a desire to make it um, as cinematic as possible, more cinematic. Yes. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, given the three episodes we've seen so far, so what, what are some of the elements that you feel like make this a cinematic television experience? Yeah, a lot of it was a, was a, a push to go on location as much as possible, which had its own ups and downs because... It's pretty well chronicled. We were meant to go to Puerto Rico before the first and second earthquake hit. So we had to pivot. And then obviously it was compounded when COVID hit and it started to restrict where we could go. Um, But if you look a lot at a lot of television shows, you know, you end up, for instance, being in the same set a lot because you kind of have to just build, you know, uh, the red keep and you got to go to the red keep every week because man, you just spent a lot of money building the red keep. So much. And you, you have to figure out, 
how much you can stand to move from place to place and let the story tell you where you want to go versus having to write towards, well, I got to go back to headquarters. And Falcon and Winter Soldier could have been a headquarters show, I would argue, but we were able, again, hopefully in in a way that feels effective and feels big, to not restrain the storytelling in that way so that it could go globetrotty as much as, again, was possible without having to always justify coming back and, and going to see the chief, for lack of a better analogy. Right. Well, and it's, it's interesting to me. You mentioned that you've been in Marvel for 11 years. Um, I know you've, you've progressed through various things, the writer's program, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering, one of the things that's so fascinating about Marvel is, is that consistency of the producers, which helps mm-hmm. that consistency of the projects across the board, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you can talk at all about your journey I don't know, for lack of a better term, up through the ranks of Marvel to where you are now. Yeah, when I joined Marvel uh, at the top of 2010, they brought me in to run the writer's program Mm -hmm. because I had a ton of experience in development at other companies. And Marvel was not, I would argue, still is not a company that was planned in how it came together. It kind of just came together, right? It was sort of the people who made Iron Man 1 became the cornerstone of what Marvel would become as a a company. And and for me, it was almost the reverse. I didn't have a ton of production experience. I just had a ton of development experience. And so in running the writer's program, I was able, I think, to turn notes around and to really uh, hopefully help those writers uh, see the light of day and their projects a bit faster, you know. Um, but it's interesting in that Marvel, I would argue, takes chances on people more than other places. And I say that because... You know, I was pitching, I remember going to retreat and I was pitching Guardians of the Galaxy because Nicole had done a ton of work and it was really good and it was really exciting. And and ultimately, Nicole would go on to write the movie. So it was, it was great. But um, at the end of that retreat, Kevin said, look, I'm going to take you off of Guardians because I need somebody to produce Captain America 2. And Steven, who produced the first one, is not available. So you're doing it. Now, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> I have zero produce credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a ton of development experience. Never hired a director. Like I've never been in charge of a project, but it is sort of the Marvel way to say, hey, we believe in you and we're not going to let you sink. And here's your movie. Go to town. And that is the experience of, I would argue, every producer who's ever made a Marvel film. At one point, they were untested, hadn't done a film. And they said, here's your giant blockbuster, kid. Go make that movie. And that sort of learning on the fly, it's sort of to go back to the Disney Plus thing. If yeah. somebody puts that trust into you, you're going to kill yourself to make that movie good because you don't want to invalidate that trust. So yeah. when I went to Cleveland with the Rooster Brothers on uh, Winter Soldier, a thing I'd never done before, like I was killing myself. I was working weekends. I was up all night, like trying to make it as good as I could because I didn't want to betray the trust that they put in me. And that trickles down, I think. Like everybody... I think even to some degree in casting and filmmakers, like everybody's been entrusted with this great thing um, by people who really do believe in them and people who are going to do everything they can to make sure you don't fail. Yeah. You're probably not going to let them fail. You know what I mean? We're not one of 80 movies on a slate. All of our movies are one of one and you have your producer there. Who's going to be with you every step of the way, because for, I don't want to fail. I don't want this first Disney plus show to not work. So I'm going to be in there with Malcolm as much as he needs me to be there. And that's the attitude of the studio. And, it, and I think it's a very stressful environment to work because you don't want to fail, but it's a very healthy environment to work because you know that success is possible because they want you to succeed. You mentioned Guardians coming out of the writer's program. Um, of course, also Black Panther came out of the, the writer's program. And this is a project that you were 
very closely associated with. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, did your role change at all at the company once Black Panther was such a smash all a hit? Uh, not not really that's the other thing about the company it's not a it's there's not a lot of room for ego because there's so much work to do you know Mm -hmm. um and certainly black panther i couldn't be more proud of and was very lucky to be a part of it It wasn't the highest grossing movie we've ever made you know what i mean it's not like like there was avengers there was avengers like so you don't there's very little resting on laurels and there's maybe too little celebration of the accomplishment because you're thrust into the next thing. You know, Panther was released, but I was looking for writers for <laughs> Falcon and Winter Soldier and Eternals at the same time. So there wasn't a, really a victory lap and that's okay. Like from at least my personality, that's kind of better. Like I want to throw myself into the work and there's plenty of work to be had, um, but it didn't change. My role is the same, you know, um, my function on movies are the same. Mm-hmm. I'm in uh, Atlanta right now prepping the second movie. It's the same uh, in, a, in a way that I find really healthy and really um, grounding. Is there something that Malcolm said to me that I thought um, was both so interesting and also not something that I had fully grasped is this idea of it's a big difference between telling a story about black heroes in Wakanda and telling a story about black heroes in America, American Mm. era, black experience is so different. I was wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit about the differences you see there and and what you're hoping this show accomplishes. Yeah, I, I, he's exactly right. I mean, and it's interesting in in that it was something I probably hadn't thought a lot about until Ryan Coogler joined Panther, right? Mm -hmm. Because here's a black hero, but as an African hero, um, and one of the first things Ryan brought to that project was the strong desire to have Eric Killmonger as the African-American point of view, because he goes, look, Africa's great. And T'Challa's going to be fantastic and Wakanda's going to be great. I, I want it to be a conversation about Black people in America who feel disenfranchised from their past, because to be Black in America is different than being African. And I think Malcolm is exactly right. This Sam Wilson is an African American or black hero. He's not an African hero. He's not T'Challa. His experience is different. Um, You know, think about T'Challa's sort of T'Challa was raised in a society that was African where he was celebrated, where he could be the prince. And that's not, it wasn't overcoming a bunch of odds to be the prince. Like there was going to be an African prince in Wakanda. Always. There only ever had been. Right. Sam Wilson is coming from a society that was built primarily on the back of slavery and slavery of Africans who were unwillingly brought to America. So the black experience is completely different. So success in America is defined completely differently because as we all know, we've had one black president and that was a big deal. And there was a big backlash as soon as he was out of office, like Sam Wilson sees the world in just a different way. And even though he came from Louisiana to working class parents and rose up through the ranks of the military, he also left the military voluntarily. Like he has a very complicated relationship with the country that's always sort of been a a part of the fabric of the movies even, but because he's never been the main character has never really been examined. So I think the show gets to examine that in a way that especially in light of the very tragic things that we're going through visibly as a country, even though it's always been happening, feels even more timely because holy shit, like what the, what the show is talking about is couldn't be more in our faces now, or at least for those people who, who don't experience that daily. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned things that, you know, Malcolm may have not been sure that Disney or, or Marvel would want to do. And you're sort of like, no, let's try it. Um, you know, when, when did the, when did the idea to put Isaiah Bradley and that storyline into the show come about? That was Malcolm. That was Malcolm. He said, I want to do this. Uh, what's your feeling about this? I know it was a controversial comic. Um, and I said, that would be great. <laughs> Isaiah Bradley's amazing. Um, I'd read Truth, Red, White, uh, Red, Black, and Blue a long time ago. I didn't think the comic was great, but I thought the idea was great, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think Malcolm was very smart in figuring out how to anchor that story into the overall fabric of the show, which is really about legacy, right? It's about what is the legacy of Cap's shield and kind of America, and that's, you know, I, I think if there is a, an overarching theme or idea of the show, it wants to in, interrogate that. And is that legacy for everyone? And everybody's going to see that legacy differently. Yeah. And Isaiah Bradley, in, in the MCU version, uh, which Carl Lumley has done a fantastic job on, is such a more vocal participant in that conversation than he was in the books because he was a vegetable and was infantilized and sort of had all the agency taken out of him. Yeah. Malcolm gave him all the agency back. And so now here's a character who can actually have a conversation about what the show is about and really weigh in on the on the things that I think are subconscious, probably in Sam's character. Isaiah gets to make them conscious and gets to bring them out. And I think that's such an important character and, and more to come. But I think that's why the Isaiah Bradley inclusion was so great. And again, all credit goes to Malcolm for for really advocating for that. Malcolm has said that episode five is the one that he is sort of most excited or anticipating uh, mm-hmm. people's reactions to. Is that, is that how you feel as well? Yeah. Episode five, I think gets to bring a lot of the threads that maybe felt disparate or not fully formed together. Okay. So you sort of get to see again, the conversation the show is going to try to have with the audience. I think episode four is going to be a lot of people's favorite episodes for some, some action reasons and some big character turns, mm-hmm. but five, I think really gets to be the culmination of the theme, you know? Um, and, and I do think it's both from an, from an acting standpoint, from a filmmaking standpoint, I think is our strongest episode. Something that um, I've heard people talk about in terms of this show um, and in sort of what Marvel is doing now is this idea of really diving into who gets to be a hero. This is something that Marvel is actively investigating right now. But, you know, given how long Black Panther was gestating at Marvel, sort of what does it feel like to you to finally see these projects that were sort of in the works for so long conversations, heroes you wanted to do finally, you know, get to have their moment in the sun. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, it's great. I think, I think it's a long time coming and, and it's not just the show. It's not just WandaVision. It's Miss Marvel. It's she Hulk. It's these, these characters who again, I would argue have been a big component to the publishing history, but because of the way that Hollywood oftentimes evaluates properties worthiness of being made or not made, they were overlooked, you know? And, and the truth is these stories are universal, even though they're specific. I think the more specific your story, the more universal it gets to be Um, because people understand. I think, I think we underestimate the amount of empathy people have for others as Mm -hmm. filmmakers sometimes. And you go, unless it looks like the audience, they're not going to buy it. And I think that's a hundred percent wrong and undersells what we as humans are capable of feeling. And now we're finally getting to tell stories that are specific to other cultures or genders or, or uh, subcultures or, or international cultures. And they're as universal as ever. 
not because the world is so different, but because people are over-indexing on the thing we think they don't have, which is empathy, you know? So as storytellers, we've been, we haven't been doing our jobs and, and we haven't been serving people what they actually want, which is just really good stories that are specific and that are emotional and that, and that are dramatic and that are happy and that are fun. Um, but that, that can look like just about anything because ultimately we're all human, yeah. you know? So it is, it's been gratifying. I think the last 10 years, you know, it was, it was harder in the beginning. A, we just also weren't that making as much content. So there was, there was right. less room. And now that we're having these avenues, I love that we're just running at it and saying, okay, well, being a hero is for everyone. And let us show you the wide variety of heroes, both on Disney plus and features with, with Shang-Chi, with Eternals, with Black Widow, with all the things we're doing. I, I just think it's just the beginning. I really do. You talked about, you know, the, the uh, increase in content that Marvel mm-hmm. is doing right now. Um, and something that, you know, for, for those of us who are, who are maybe a little too invested in what's happening at Marvel, <laughs> we can, <laughs> We think we can see the threads shooting out from one project into another, right? Yeah, so sure. if, you watch, if you watch the end of Endgame, you can see how those sort of vignettes right at the end are directly launching into Disney Plus shows, right? Uh-huh. Wanda's moment, Sam, Bucky, and, and, and Cap and the Shield. And then, you know, watching WandaVision, you can see how that can launch into Captain Marvel 2 or, or you know, like all this other mm-hmm. stuff. You can see the thread shooting out. So when it comes to this great balancing act and all these like plates you have spinning, how much is that awareness of where you have to launch forward from a pro does this question make sense where you have yeah. to launch forward like how does that interact with the story the main story you want to tell uh the the, the truth it the truth is it's probably more fluid than it seems mm-hmm. and i think the reason that it works if it works at all is that all of us as filmmakers and producers and writers are open to including a new idea because man that's a great idea or or throwing an idea out, even if that might have a ripple downstream, if that makes sense. So, you know, characters like uh, uh, Monica Rambo, for instance, um, weren't necessarily in the, the first iteration of WandaVision, but as that team started to think about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if a character did this thing? All of a sudden you go, oh, you know, it'd be great, Monica Rambo. Mm-hmm. And then you get to have this fun handoff where you go, hey, uh, other movie that maybe has that character in it now, uh, wouldn't it be, we have this character. Do you want to use this character? Oh yeah. Heck yeah. Like let's figure out how to work her in. So there is a flexibility um, that isn't prescriptive, which I think makes it work because what we've, what we've not ever really done is said, this person has to be in your show. So figure it out. Mm-hmm. It's usually like make your show. Oh, who's in that? Oh, you're going to put that person in there. Now we can make hay over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have that kind of, flexibility and for all of us as a team to be willing to take a ball to take the handoff and go cool handoff I don't know what it means but let me go run with it I think speaks to the cohesiveness cohesiveness of the, of the creative team and sometimes they're hard conversations like I can remember for instance and this is a small thing but I think speaks to it in civil war we needed a big thing to sort of escalate that airport fight and me as a big nerd was like hey wouldn't it be great if ant-man turned to giant man Mm-hmm. Now, the truth is, then I had to go to the Ant-Man 2 producer and go like, hey, we're going to turn him into Giant Man. And Brad was like, but that was going to be a big moment in Ant-Man 2. And I was like, and then you, and then it's the conversation of where is there more value for the audience? Like, where yeah. would the audience, 
And it was such a good moment that ultimately Brad goes, I get it, man. Like, go do it. I'll figure out something else. And again, it's only because we work together forever and we all know each other and like each other and have and have been on either side of that conversation. Yeah. That that kind of sharing of ideas and being willingness to to be flexible is is just a fabric of the company. Um, So it's it's it really is neat. And it's less it's both less planned than you think it is, but ultimately can feel really planned because as long as everyone else embraces an idea, it's going to feel organic because we're, we're going to try to sell it to you that way, you know? Yeah. Um, and this is the last question I have. And I, this is the one that I, you know, you may or may not want to respond to. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, as you, as you uh, all at, at uh, Marvel headquarters may have seen with WandaVision, um, speculation runs rampant, right? With yeah. These, with these projects. And um, I know it's Marvel's policy to not comment on any speculation. You know, that's definitely your policy. I did want to raise this one just because I've been seeing this and it, and it makes me a little nervous, which is that, a lot of thing, people think because, you know, Wakanda enters, you know, Florence Kasumba enters enters the, the scene at the end of episode three, that they can expect a T'Challa, Chadwick Boseman cameo. And from, uh. for, for me, I feel like that's not something that you guys would just drop on an audience. Um, no. Yeah, no, uh, I can say like that, that is not going to happen. Um, yeah. That is not going to happen. And, okay. and I would, I would be honest if it was that, it, you know, like Chad's passing is a whole life thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I love the guy as much as the character. And I think we have to be very careful and thoughtful about when he appears. Cause he meant so much to a lot of people as much as he meant to us. But, but yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't use that as a Surprise. come next week. Maybe <laughs> you'll see Panther like right. that. Uh, we, we wouldn't. So he, and he's not, and, and we never intended for him to be. So, so no, uh, we will not see uh, T'Challa in, okay. in the Falcon Winter Soldier. Thank you. That's the answer I was hoping for. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> since, I, since I do have technically four more minutes, I'm going to squeeze one last question in for you, yeah. which is um, Zemo is one of my favorite villains because he's uh, such a, um, he, you know, I love a villain with a really human, um, motivation behind, you know, it's not just like I want to rule the world, but like yeah. something more interesting than that. Um, this show is playing a lot with those kinds of villains, where um, which is you know something Malcolm said to me. So I'm wondering, for your in your view, what makes a great Marvel villain? Uh, yeah, the greatest Marvel villains are villains who have an em- emotional reason for what they're doing that is that is that you and I would call reasonable. Mm-hmm. I, I I never think it works, even just as a fan, like. To your point, any villain who wants to take over the world, I go, why? Like, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine what kind of emotional drama causes that. But right. if you can really think about what is making a villain tick and and it feels like something that you and I would go like, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Those are the best villains. So right. Killmonger, really interesting, right? Because you go, I see, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Uh, 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 Carly Morgenthau. Yeah. I get it, man. Like it's, it's playing out in our everyday lives, you know, um, uh, Thanos, I get it. Like, yeah, there's a problem. You know what I mean? They're all rooted in issues and emotions that are, that are of our world. I think it's so much easier, uh, to make those characters great Mm -hmm. than villains that seem a little like, like, I don't want to dinger on villains, but like ego, like I kind of don't get it. Like I kind of don't get his deal. <laughs> I kind of don't get his deal. So I think Kurt Russell's great. I think it looked fantastic. I don't really 
I don't really get an emotional. There's nothing emotional for me to go to invest in. Yeah. Um, and I think, and when we can figure out what those emotional anchors are that again, if the movie were made differently, they would be the heroes. Those are the best. Those are the best films. Okay, that was the incredible of Mr. Nate Moore. And now you'll hear me speak with director Kari Skoglin, who directed all six episodes of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, she's also, she's had a huge career directing some of the biggest shows that are out there. Boardwalk Empire, Handmaid's Tale, Walking Dead, etc. Um, she's such a pro and it was such a joy to talk to her. So here is our conversation with Kari. I wanted to start by asking you, you know, I've, I've spoken to, to Malcolm Spellman. I also spoke to the head writer and director of WandaVision. I spoke to Nate Moore actually earlier this week about the Marvel TV process and how it's different from other television shows. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about, you know, your pitching process, about being involved in the writer's room and how that's different from what you've done elsewhere in your CV. Uh, well, you know, I've been involved in lots of writers' rooms, so the the nature of what that was wasn't different. Mm-hmm. What was a bit different um, and really appreciated on my side was that um, I was brought in at that stage. Uh, so I was in the writers' room from like when I arrived, we didn't have any scripts. So um, I was brought into the writers' room where uh, I was, you know, my ideas. Malcolm was terrific at embracing some of my ideas and. There was a lot of dialogue back and forth um, so that, uh, you know, my thoughts were also baked into the DNA of the show, which meant that as I left the writer's room, I could go on and as the scripts were coming in, um, I could move on uh, in, you know, and, and uh, work on the pre-production side, um, knowing the DNA of the scripts. So and knowing what was discussed in the room and the, the, the genesis of an idea and uh, how it could be morphed or changed if necessary. So it was, um, I think, really helpful for all of us to be able to, you know, put our signature on the work. Uh, and for, you know, Malcolm, for me to understand what Malcolm was thinking um, and what the other writers were thinking, uh, just, you know, even as an idea was um, being born uh, and how I could help steer it perhaps to be more production friendly or more cinematic or in, in ways from the director's eye, performance potentials, those sorts of things, um, all became very collaborative, which was, uh, unusual for the director to be on the, when doing television, unusual for the director to be in the, not, not unheard of, but certainly unusual. And it was great. I really, uh, loved that. I'm really curious. Um, you know, so much of this show has to do with, um, I think I would say, the fragility of the American dream or the fictions of the American dream or who does the American dream belong to. And I'm curious, you know, since you're a Canadian, if it's easier to sort of analyze that from outside um, outside the room looking in and, and being able to see, point out some of the cracks that are that are in that narrative. Well, I'm also American and both my daughters were born in the States, so I feel like I... Um, I have a foot in both worlds. Uh-huh. Um, and my past work, I've done, uh, I, I've looked at, uh, for example, the Troubles in, in um, Northern Ireland. Uh, possibly because uh, I grew up uh, in Canada, I feel a little like Switzerland. 
uh, it's quite possible, you know, <laughs> that um, uh, we have a different way of looking at community in Canada and um, and looking at social uh, social. Um, I want to say social conscience, but also um, social responsibility to each other. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's much more socialist uh, versus um, individualist, I suppose, if that's right. the way to put it in the States. I think having lived in the States for many years, um, I've really come to admire and embrace uh, the, the U.S. sensibility and the the willingness to... Um, embrace change as much as fight it, you know, but to have the dialogue about it. I think most important um, to all of this conversation is democracy. And I think that um, was at the core of, of the, particularly this show and where we were sitting within the zeitgeist of the moment and where we are sitting now, you know, politically um, after after Trump is no longer in the White House and Biden's coming in and how we're starting to reflect on on a period where uh, democracy came under a different kind of um, a different kind of lens yeah. uh, and scrutiny and so um, I don't know I think I was incredibly fortunate to come from enough of a European style background that I could be open to um, alternative ideas, I suppose, and perhaps embrace that in my thought process, which then, you know, helped us in the, in, in guiding this conversation that we were having about democracy within, within democracy and borders and imperialism. All of these themes were being uh, discussed within the narrative of this show. And, um, and because I've also done so much work in Europe uh, I think I'd like to say I brought to the party that sensibility because we were an international thriller, right? And um, we needed to have we needed to bring that to the to the room, and um, and so I've spent a lot of time in Europe, and so I I really could speak to what that that um, perspective was about the U.S. and the sort of imperialist kind of qualities the U.S. presents to the outside world. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, you know, like there's uh, so so many real world locations in this show, but there's also the fictional location of Madripoor, which is a dazzling, uh, in my view, uh, fulfillment of of this oh, location great. that I'm, we. I'm glad we. <laughs> you dazzled. You dazzled <laughs> me. Um, a, a location I'm familiar with from the comics, and it was so fun to see it come to life. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, oh, um, you know, what you were trying to accomplish with with Madripoor. Well, Madripoor uh, has to be a lawless place. And um, we had lots of conversations about how big or small or, or you know, because it wants, it, we were drawing from the comics, obviously, but we were not duplicating. Mm -hmm. um, although we did draw, you know, a little bit from the skyline and, and it, we drew what we felt would be relevant to our show. Um, so we created this idea that it was an island with one way in and one way out, you know, what, how would you, if you were a lawless place, how would you secure a lawless place? You'd make sure that there were not very many ways in or out so, um, so that you could control things. We wanted it to have an upper, an upper town and a lower town only because, which 
actually came out of uh, early conversations before it was Madripoor, uh, which just had to do with them having to go to a place that was much more dangerous than another place that was dangerous in a different way because it was full of um, wealthy criminals versus more street-level criminals. And then we, once we got into Madripoor, but we did a you know high town and a low town, um, and tried to imagine what that was. Uh, so it was a a long process. I want to say that took us probably close to Ray Chan and I talked about it. Ray Chan is the production designer who did mm-hmm. an amazing job. We talked about that for probably six months before all the plans were finalized and and what what it was down to the minutia of, you know, was there um, like the power broker, or the, even the, the um, you know, the bill, not billboard, but the painting on the wall yeah. in, in episode three. Yeah. Uh, you know, where, how pervasive was that? Where was Dr. Nagel's um, place going to be that it could be, uh, uh, you know, easily hidden? Uh, what hadn't we seen before? All these things, right? So um, I like, I'd like to think, and I'm, thrilled that you you used the word dazzled because <laughs> we definitely uh, <laughs> we're trying and i i have to say the idea of the the bikes leading i did a whole presentation of what i thought um madripoor could be with um uh video and and imagery and stuff because of course you can't just dream up madripoor i had to have a kind of a visual document <laughs> to be able to say to everybody uh-huh, including all the Marvel folks, this is how we've imagined it. Well, I wanted to ask you. I mean, I know, I know, you can't tell me uh, for sure one way or another, but um, I imagine Madripoor is a lo- is a kind of location that Marvel would at least want the option to revisit in a future film, right, or a future TV show. It's one of their iconic locations from the comics. So, without confirming or denying whether or not this is going to be in some other show or, or film, when it's something like that, when it's a Madripoor. Uh, is that a different level of conversation where where you need to have all of Marvel sign off on like, yeah, we, we are really happy with this look that we could pull forward into this franchise if we wanted to? I don't think they ever have a conversation like that um, because they uh, they really look to how it sits within the story you're telling. Okay. So um, I don't know that they... Whether they have future plans or not, I, I wouldn't know. But um, I think they only look at the immediate and say, make it the best you can make it and make it the most evocative you can make it. And, you know, uh, put together something that we haven't seen before that's, that's you know, pulled from the comics, but isn't, isn't duplicating, what the, you know, is improving what the comics are, not duplicating what the comics are. Right. And then I guess if we're lucky enough that we've, we've dazzled, then, then they would probably use it again. I don't know, but um, uh, that's all. So, as far as I know, there's never those conversations. It's really just about how does it, you know make it great for now mm-hmm. for what we're doing. Yeah, and the, the rest will take care of itself. Gotcha. Um, all right, I want to talk about the Sharon uh, shipping container fight because I loved this fight so much. Um, I'm a big Sharon Carter oh, fan, and you. I was yeah, and I'm just like so. Ha- I think everyone was just so thrilled to watch her just sort of clean up uh, in in this fight. Um, I'm curious, you know, you know, it's 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 tough. It's it's one it's one person against a bunch of uh, mercenaries here, a bunch of bounty hunters, whatever you want to call it. Okay, I I can say that that was my idea. In part, it was because uh, 
I, I literally said, okay, guys, how many people are you going to put in this room with Nagel? I've got like four actors and Nagel. Um, we can't have Sharon in there <laughs> because that's too many people. <laughs> and uh, so what can we have her do? And um, I said, hey, what about if she's off, you know, it, let's make it that all these people are trying to get in there and she's like atomic blonde she's able to, you know, hold, hold the, hold the uh, enemy at the gates basically. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so I wanted it to have an, uh, an atomic wand quality to the, the fighting that it was much grittier and, uh, not, didn't feel choreographed, felt one take ish, you know, where it all happens in front of you and the, and the transition, you know, any, any, and she did most of the, her own work. I have to say she, she really, um, uh, rehearsed and and trained for months to do those sequences. Um, so there's there's very little stunt work in there. Uh, there is some, but very little, and you'd be hard pressed to find it. Um, so uh, that was the goal, so that it really felt, um, you know, kick-ass, female kick-ass, uh, <laughs> and uh, no cuts. No way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, there's one sequence where I was sure it was a stunt double because she had her hood pulled up. And I was like, okay, there's there's the stunt uh -huh. double. And then she turned and it was Emily Van Camp's face. And I was like, no, that's Emily. It's still her. Yeah. She's doing it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah it was no, it was her. Yeah, she was doing it. Yeah. She was doing it. No, really, she was. And so I'm very proud that uh, that she was able to, you know, uh, not get hurt, honestly. Oh, yeah. Because that's the other thing. Oh. You know, you put an actor through some of this. Uh, stuff and you you um, you're terrified that uh, they're going to uh, you know because of course they're in the moment and and she really threw herself into those sequences but that's how people get hurt so anyway she managed it we had a very safe stunt team so they managed to keep her safe and uh, and she managed to just pull off the badass of it so it was, <laughs> it was great so yeah it was really fun to imagine that and then the the sort of the banter back and forth guys you better pick it up in there because. <laughs> you know, you mentioned, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Atomic Blonde because I know that Charlize has had to have like multiple dental surgeries after like her stunt heavy work that she's done just because that's that's the toll it can take on the body. You know what I mean? Um, For I sure. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about, oh, something that Nate said to me and, and it was something that I was pretty sure was true was one of the inspirations for this show in the first place was the natural chemistry that um, Anthony and Sebastian have on their various press tours. If you watch their various mm -hmm. press tours, they're just sort of mm -hmm. really doing, giving it to each other back and forth and stuff like that. How do you, how do you try to translate that chemistry into a more scripted environment? And especially I would say a challenge in that is that while Anthony and Sam are pretty close Sebastian and Bucky are, are there's a there's a wider distance between those two personalities. So I'm wondering, you know, how do you try to capture that natural in the wild chemistry and put it into this scripted environment? Well, the first thing we did was in the writers' room, we watched a lot of their interviews mm -hmm. <laughs> so that we could really um uh you know, study it and see how in the natural environment it worked. What, what was the, the nature of it by, by um, uh, you know, who had the quips, who was the, fall, who was the, the straighter, straight guy, who was the, you know, how, how did it just work between them? Yeah. And because my feeling is you don't try and put a square peg in a round hole. And so it was really building on what was already there and saying, okay, these are the strengths and weaknesses of it, so let's build on that. And because we were in such a grounded 
world. And Bucky, we were meeting Bucky now, the new Bucky, um, you know, the, the, the guy that has, was no longer um, servicing a mind control situation and was in therapy and, you know, had, had come some distance. We were able to evolve Bucky a little bit into, into the space that would be more fun to, to watch him, you know, be the pitcher and the catcher of the, these, these um, uh, individual jokes and, and the banter of it. Then the other thing we did, uh, or I guess I did on the floor, was a, a lot of um, ad lib and let them riff. We really tried to capture. So the script, while yes, we had a script to to go back to, mm-hmm. and because obviously mm-hmm. you have to protect the the story of it. Um, I did a lot of improv with them. We did a lot of improv even in reading the script. So so in um, you know rehearsals, uh, we would capture what the improv was and then put it you know bake it back into the script. Uh, but then even on the day, things would change and they would, they would, uh, we were really um, uh, encouraging them to be, you know, to freeform wherever possible. And they did. And so a lot of their work is, uh, you know, genuine, ad, genuine banter in the, in the moment. I, I don't know if you saw this <laughs> trending on Twitter today um, after Daniel Brühl gave an interview to Entertainment Weekly, I believe, about the extended dance sequence that he did. And I saw the hashtag release the Zemo cut was trending. Um, can you t- can you talk to me at all about Daniel Brühl's uh, dancing on 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 the set there oh, that's that so day? Funny. That's what I just just before this interview, just before this interview, I got these texts from Daniel going, Oh my God, they love Zemo. I'm so happy. <laughs> and I didn't know. You just told me why. I was like, I hadn't seen it. So, <laughs> so um, uh, okay. We had so much fun. So it, it turns out Daniel as a person is incredibly funny. Um, and he's a, a wonderful sense of humor and a, a, a real gentleman. And so we got into this, the idea of this, this club and the bar um, was really I wanted to take the characters and see them in some downtime, you know, it because it, it just I wanted to get to know them in a different environment that had maybe um, was you know sexy and and uh, see them in a different costume and uh, kind of you know uh, my whole goal was to get um, Sebastian in a in a, some form of a tux <laughs> same with Anthony some form of I just wanted to see them you know as as um, the other side to their characters, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, same with Simo because he, in a place where they were so yanked out of their out of their um, main line, you know, they could in fact enjoy each other. Uh, and for example, you know, when when Zemo says trouble, that was pure Daniel just in the moment. <laughs> and I said, oh my god, we have got to use that. And so when we got into the the nightclub of it, um, they were, you know, I just had them doing some stuff and, and he just, he just was rocking on by himself there and we just captured it on (laughs) film. So, uh, and we just thought it was the funniest and most fun moment that we could come up with that, you know, he could have possibly come up with to see Zemo so different. Um, so yeah, that, uh, that explains why Daniel was texting me <laughs> a few minutes ago. <laughs> yes, he's officially a meme now. They love the dancing. They want more of it. So, um, yeah, thank you for giving us that gift. 
<laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text him back now and say, okay, I, I want lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Anthony Bresnikin, if you thought uh, all the gunplay last week was a dark turn for the MCU, how do you feel about blood dripping off of Captain America's shield? Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) Even the music, even the closing credits music for this episode was more subdued. And it was like, oh, no, like it was shook. I was I have to say, I think that's the most disturbing image in Mm -hmm. MCU history. Are we agreed on that? Well, I mean, let's see. I think, like, the most disturbing closing image, right? Because, like, I think there have been moments like, I don't know, Natalie's... Oh, sorry, Natasha's... I was like, Natalie's long for Nat, right? No, Natasha's mm-hmm. death, um, Endgame, or, like, that vision in Ultron where everyone's sort of, like, broken and dead that, that Tony has. And, yeah. if, and if, like, an episode ended with that... You would be disturbed, but then it like goes on to wrap up in a more optimistic way. So it's, I think, it, more than anything. I mean, yes, it ranks right up there with anything we've ever seen, but also more than anything, it's the fact that it's what we're left with for a week sitting with that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm gonna. Uh, you and I are usually lockstep. I think this overshoots all of those. Like Natasha's death w- was sad. It was it it. It's heartbreaking, but it's also like a noble sacrifice, and it was her choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you know, like the the when everybody's uh, 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 decimated in that vision that you just described. Yeah, but that's almost more Halloweeny. This was a guy who, I mean, did he decapitate him? It I think he like did. Uh, not. <laughs> Not to sound too gross or anything like that, but I zoomed in on the like you know there's a wide shot of him because I was I wasn't sure if he was decapitated or if he had sort of caved his chest in, um, both equally fun options. Um, but I zoomed in on the wide shot and his chest looked intact to me, so I think that's a that is a decapitation from Cap, and it's I, a cap it, from Cap. Yeah, I think it's massively disturbing. It's, it's the, awful. Yeah, and like. He was already on the way to being, I mean, he was already a jerk, right? I mean, there's other words we could use for him. Mm -hmm. Um, But in this episode, boy, they began dialing that volume up and they never stopped dialing. Mm -hmm. You know, my wife and I were watching it and we're like, (laughs) um, does John Walker know about this fancy new invention called a doorknob? (laughs) Because... (laughs) Every time he enters a room, he, like, smashes through the door rather than opening it. Like, he just kicks it in or bashes it in. And we started laughing at a certain point because he just, like, he just he just crashes in every single time. He's like mm. Kool-Aid Man, you know? <laughs> like, Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. He's, he's so rude and he's such a, he's such a jackass. In, in, and obviously when he – even before he gets the super soldier serum – and, uh, uh, you know, when he enters for that final battle with Carly and he's got the shield and the gun, it's the gun on top of the shield where I'm like, oh, this is so disturbing already. And then poor uh, Battlestar, mm-hmm. poor Lamar gets, I mean, do we believe he's dead? 
I, I think so. I think yeah. so, right? Because they had that, they kept cutting back to his body during yeah. the chase. And I was like, is he going to open his eyes? And this is going to be like a Romeo and Juliet thing where he thinks he was killed, but he's <sighs> actually okay. And like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I, 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 I gather that he's actually dead. Yeah. Like he was just so horrible throughout this. And you, and I just feel like, um, Malcolm did a really great job creating a human version of the worst of America. Like if Steve Rogers is the best, if he represents our ideals, I think this guy just represents our worst. This guy is Abu Ghraib. This guy is, uh, enhanced mm-hmm. interrogation. This guy is, I mean, I don't want to inflame people, but Derek Chauvin, that's what that final scene reminded me of. No, absolutely. Everyone right? with their cell phones out, I think, is supposed to be an invocation of um, police brutality, you know? I mean, without question, it's just... Yeah. And he, and, but also, not just b- brutality, but murder. He murder. murdered that man. And yeah. Derek Chauvin did, too. And, like, it's... In the, and they did it... In, in, in not just in front of people, but almost in spite of people. Uh, so I found it. I found it so disturbing. That's why I just I can't get over it. it. That final scene with the blood. You know, my wife and I were talking. Like we've been watching this show with the kids. How do we deal with this scene? It's a little much for them. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. I will be. I'll be really interested to see. To, I would be interested to hear from parents. Not, I mean, once again, I don't want to sound like a pearl-clutching conservative, you know what I mean? Like, plenty of kids can handle plenty of things and stuff like that, but, like, I'd be interested to hear from uh, parents still watching pod at gmail.com, like, if if you're struggling with this, uh, with their kids watching this, you know? Like, I, I think this is PG-13, right? Yeah. So I think, like, there are different levels of being a kid. Like, my yeah. my daughter is is pushing 12, and I think... That's heavy for her, maybe. Just and every kid is different too. Every Their sensibilities different. are different. Yeah, but yeah. my eight-year-old son, like I don't, I don't know if I think we might. That's just a lot for him, you know. And uh, uh, it, it, uh, I. But I think it's imp- You know, I'm really glad. I don't. Also, don't want to sound like I'm criticizing this scene. I'm really glad they had that final shot, a shot from below. Mm-hmm. You're actually looking from the perspective of the, of the victim there. Mm-hmm. And that American symbol on that shield that we know, and there's the quote unquote Captain America behind it, and it's dripping with blood. And I just mm-hmm. think that's a that's a ballsy, brave. Uh, that's a, a I think a courageous image to show because I think the impulse with Marvel so often is. Uh, we're going to destroy a whole country, but you're never going to see a drop of blood, <laughs> you know, unless it's mm-hmm. like a little bit running from the corner of the hero's mouth to show that he, uh, you know, yeah. really took it on the chin. Or she one careful, really... careful cut along the cheekbone that really highlights yeah. the angular features. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, a little blood from the ear, which he he does have, uh, which John Walker does have coming out of his uh, his uh, cowl, but I. I think this really shows the consequences, and we talk a lot about that, right? Show the repercussions of these actions. And it isn't just that he banged his shield and killed a guy. We see the death. We don't have to see the head flying off and the tendons ripping, but we see the blood, and it is gruesome. I thought it was really powerful. Yeah. There's something – I wanted to go back to something you said about um, John Walker kicking down doors. Um, I think a sequence that's done really well in this episode um, is John discovering 
his powers during the fight, right? Mm -hmm. He first realizes it as he kicks that door open. I mean, he kicked other doors open, but but this is like the glass shatters as he kicks the door open. And then he throws his shield and the shield gets stuck in the in the wall or the pillar and then he can pull it out. And he's like, oh, you know, you could just like Wyatt Russell silently is showing us someone coming to grips with their power. And then he, you know, he bends the bar and like all this sort of stuff along uh, throughout the fight. Uh, discovering the limits uh, of his power or the lack of limits of his power. Mm. And um, I went back and I rewatched, we talked about it before, but that Audrey's bridal scene in Captain America. Uh, Exactly. Like (laughs) we, we, I I rewatched that scene where Steve is chasing down Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Armitage, uh, who Mm -hmm. has just killed Erskine. Erskine. And um, Steve in that moment, um, you know, you had talked in an earlier episode about how they got a runner to double him. He had fake rubber feet on, all this stuff like that. But what what really stands out if you watch those two scenes back to back is how Steve is just like, sorry, 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 yeah. sorry, like crashing in a window, running into a car, like, sorry, 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 sorry. And just like, yeah. like, appa- like, 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 literally doesn't know his own strength. Yeah, yeah, doesn't know his own strength, but is like appalled, uh, you know, and embarrassed by like, how you know as opposed to john just sort of soaking up gleefully soaking up um his extra like strength a, here you know what the i mean the difference between a hero and a villain really yeah yeah yeah, yeah he yeah. uh i yeah i was there when he my little humble brag was i watched him crash through the window of the bridal shop mm-hmm. on that original yeah. movie yeah uh, and it's like it very it's very funny but it's also like whoops <laughs> you know yeah um yeah i just yeah, watching him come to power was really scary, and you realize that Carly Morgenthal is not the big bad of this series, that she's an antagonist, and she's questionable. Uh, but there's, um, you know, I love the scene between her and Sam, and yeah. where they actually, and I, I was watching it, and I was like, Joanna will like this scene, because it's not punching. This is I the did. quiet scene that Joanna <laughs> likes. I'm it's like, true. Tailor-made for you. It's um, true. I, I do like people in rooms talking. I'm a big fan of it. Can I? Can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. How does that final scene make you feel about the shield? Because there's this whole debate, right, of Sam saying maybe it should be destroyed and Bucky being like, no, that's what stands for Steve. Like, how do you feel about the shield? Carly says that, too, that they should have destroyed the shield, Uh which is interesting. Um, Yeah. Um. I think what's interesting is we see literal blood on the shield here, but I think what we're going to find, you know, what what Nate Moore said in his interview with me is that, you know, there's there's more to come with Isaiah. And we've been thinking about whether or not we were going to see, like, Isaiah's backstory and stuff like that. And that is about a metaphorical blood on the shield, right? Mm-hmm. The, the yes. story of Isaiah Bradley. And so I, I just think that, like... And, it, you know, it, it harkens back too to some of the things that Malcolm said, which is just Malcolm Spellman, which is just about, like, trying to complicate. This show is about trying to complicate the legacy of that symbol. And in mm-hmm. and by doing so, complicate the Aji apple pie legacy of America. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my feelings changed about it. Mm-hmm. Like, after that, I'm like, that's a murder weapon. I'm sure it was mm-hmm. it was used many times to kill really bad guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's worth noting too, like Steve Rogers carried like Captain America. His Captain America was equipped with a shield. That was his quote unquote weapon, not a gun or any other thing. It was what he used to do his 
hero work was a shield, not not a weapon, really. And I think there's a difference there, right? And this guy goes around with a gun perched on top of that shield, and now he's used it as an actual murder weapon. Yeah. And it just, it reminded me of this feeling I've had for a while that you can have a lot of good, you can do a lot of good, but then all of that can really easily be undone. You know, I think our country is the same way, right? Not to get on a soapbox or anything, but like you can make progress for a long time where things feel like they're getting more equitable, where people are learning a little more about how to be kind to each other, or how to be sensitive or uh, how to be more accepting. And yet all of that progress over decades can be undone much more easily than that progress was constructed. You know, so you elect somebody who's got fascist tendencies or a uh, uh, bigoted worldview and, to a top leadership position, and all of a sudden, it, just the house of cards falls, right? And that's what this reminded me of. It's just you can spend years trying to repair something or trying to heal something, and then it's very easy to cut it open again. And to me, I'm like... You know what? Maybe that shield should be destroyed, and we remember the good that it stood for, and and uh, you know, now it's a it's it's part of a crime scene. I don't know. <laughs> I'm yeah. really upset by this final shot. Uh, anyway, I don't, I don't I don't know. So like, what were you, what do you think? Does it change your feeling? I don't know. I I don't know what's going to happen to it. I don't know that I would want to see it gone. I might want to see it painted differently or something like that. Do you know what how, I mean? How like, do you purify something like that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it just has more to do with the with the man um, wielding it than anything else. I am still world really okay. So let me let me ask you a Zemo question, <laughs> Anthony. Um, the uh, Zemo escapes via the bathroom. The Dora Malaja right on on his heels. Uh, where do you think he goes next? Where does Zemo go? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know the answer to that, but he did a very interesting thing in this episode, didn't he? When he had access to the super soldier mm-hmm. serum, I thought for sure he was going to inject that right away. And Oh, really? He, yeah. I was like, oh, this is his chance. This is, I'm like, this is the secret reason he wants to, quote unquote, stop the super soldiers. Like, he wants it. And he looked at it, and he shattered it all. Yeah. And, uh, hmm. Well, but that's his whole thing. His whole thing is he's anti-super soldier serum. Right. Like, but and how, I think... How often are people against something that they're secretly for? Okay. Know, for okay, fair enough, fair enough. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I think that... Um, so where do you think he's headed? Well, I just think that, like, you know, and I said this to Richard, but I just think that, like, anything that... Um, Anything with super soldier serum in it, meaning Bucky, Isaiah, the Flag Smashers, John Walker, are not safe around Zemo. He says in episode four or episode three, he says, I don't mean to leave my work unfinished. Right. And he's talking about trying to dismantle the super soldier program. And so I feel like his Zemo's mission, no matter what is eradicate everything super soldier serum. That's all he cares about. And he's making nice and he's giving Turkish delight to children and he's part of fun dancing memes and stuff like that. But we should always be watching Zemo, I think. So. What what do you make of the Turkish delight? Is there a little bit of uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe there? A little Narnia, maybe, I I guess. But 
um, you know, further reason to distress him if he's white witching that Turkish delight out there. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah, that's what that reminded me of. Yeah. Also, sure. Turkish delight. I'm sorry. Are we going to get bad letters it's if I disgusting. say it's disgusting? It's <laughs> yes, disgusting. it's horrible. It's disgusting. It is. is that is that us? Like Americans raised on nerds candy I mean, and Kit Kats? Like, like maybe some people love Turkish delight, but I uh, an experience of almost any person i've ever met is reading the narnia books getting really excited about trying turkish delight and then trying it and going like oh jesus Ah. christ so yeah yeah i remember getting up like when that movie came out way 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 back in the day and they sent a little package of turkish delight as a as like a promo item like ooh, i've never tried this oh yeah yeah it's not not great um all right what else do we want to talk about uh i always think <laughs> yeah i always think of afternoon delight too and it's just a bad call <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean they have like you know the zemo singing baba black sheep and like doing that like responding to that stupid he- head tilt line like straightening his head so like that like i think they're really trying to get us to lower our defenses about zemo but did I you think- know did you i'm oh, sorry didn't you no know. go ahead did you notice that when John Walker spotted the one remaining super soldier serum, that he cocked his head like Zemo? Oh, I didn't pick that up. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, he did the head tilt. I'm like, oh, that's why they pointed that out. It wasn't just a joke. Um, I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about the um, uh, the Star of David motif that we saw in the stained yeah. glass in the apartment where they're staying. And also it was in the uh, pattern of the tile um, on the floor mm-hmm. of the warehouse. Um, I, you know, and they mentioned Nazis a couple times in this. And I'm always a little wary. Whenever they mention something twice in an episode, it feels like it's going to show up two episodes later. So, like, I got worried about, like, Zola or or the Red Skull or something like that, right? Like, they mentioned Wakanda and then Wakanda shows up. Or they mentioned Sharon and then Sharon shows up. So they mentioned Nazis a couple times. Um so I, I I don't know if that's like for shadowing something or if um, uh, it's a nod to the comics where so the character of of Bucky Barnes in in um, the MCU is a is a combination character right he's uh, he's Bucky Barnes but he's also Arnie Roth uh, you know Cap's older friend who protected Steve. Um, and that character is canonically Jewish and actually canonically gay. Um, and so I, I didn't know if they were like, probably what happened is they saw a beautiful location with a beautiful stained glass window and I'm reading too much into it, but there are like frame shots of Bucky with like, you know, star of David all around him. And I just thought that that was interesting. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yes. I noticed that too. I mean, it's the shape of a star of David, I think. An actual Star of David has the lines, mm-hmm. and these were just sort of the outline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know enough about that symbolism to know, like, oh, that doesn't count or it does count. But I do know that that all of those scenes, this whole episode was set in Riga, Latvia. Mm-hmm. And Riga was the site of, I mean, it was occupied by the Nazis, and it was the site of a, of a Jewish ghetto. Um when they were all rounded up and forced to live there. Uh, so um, I, I don't know that they, perhaps they didn't choose that location by accident. So perhaps, um, you know, what is intended here is more of a nod towards the conversations around supremacy and sort of mm-hmm. like Ubermensches and, and Zemo's 
you know, staunch uh, anti-supremacy stance, something we can probably agree on. Um, And his sense that, like, yes, Carly has this conversation with Sam, but she's still, like, kind of threatening his family, right? And there still is this idea of, like, once you become powerful, and not only powerful, but then, like, we see that she has the you know, the the fanny pack of vials, like, it's going to be, it, you know, before they were smashed, it was going to be her choice who to super up, you know what I mean? And that in and of itself is, you know, that's too much power for one person to have, right? I think this is all really insightful. Yeah, I think it's a it's human nature across the board to, you know, when you push back against something that you find oppressive or evil, it's very easy to match that, yeah. you know, fight fire with fire, and then you become like the thing you're resisting mm-hmm. without even meaning to. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's like, you see whole countries do this, you see this happen in school, where the the little freshman graduates to becoming a upper class person and uh, suddenly takes on the characteristics of the bullies. Yeah. Uh takes on the oppressive, sexist, misogynist, bigoted points of view as the kid gets older. Uh, Instead of learning to resist that, the abuser, you know, an abused child, physically abused, often becomes an abuser later. And I think one of my favorite characters in history is Robespierre because Uh Uh he was this wonderful lawyer, a champion for the underprivileged who... Mm represented them against the aristocracy and against the wealthy. And then the French Revolution happens, and suddenly everybody's like, oh, Robespierre, yeah, he's a good dude. He looked out for us. Like, let's make him one of our leaders. And he just, like, unleashes vengeance on people, not just those who deserve it, but then kept going and punishing those who just were sort of adjacent to those who deserve um, extreme punishment or to be held accountable and his punishments were maybe maybe didn't fit the crime so much and then his associates began to be uh walked to the guillotine because they were not in favor of him enough and finally his story ends with um you know the tragic thing is that he just wanted to unite france and uh finally his uh his fellow leaders uh, post-revolution are like, you know, we got to get rid of Robespierre because he's going to get rid of us. And he was marched to the guillotine. Yeah. He stands there and looks out and it's the biggest crowd they've ever had. He has united people in their fear and hatred of him. So in a way he succeeds, but by becoming even worse than the thing he fought against. So I've always found that to be instructive. Like, you know, when you're, I'm very strident politically, you know, <laughs> strong point of views. But like, I'm always trying to put a hand on my own shoulder and be like, okay, don't, don't become like the trolls. Don't become like the people you're resisting. And uh, I think that's why I asked about the beheading. Cause I was kind of like, Hmm, is this like a guillotine? Is this like the French revolution mm. went too far? A little bit of reference there, like that history thrown in a little bit of the Riga history with the, the Jewish ghetto and the Nazis thrown in. And uh, I don't know. Maybe we're reading too much into it, but I think Malcolm Spellman gave this a lot of thought. And I think he put uh, things in there for us to maybe uncover. What do you think? No, definitely. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of Robespierre. I just forced on you. No, I I love a Robespierre. Um, (laughs) Did you know that I have a, um, 
A Scarlet Pimpernel tattoo? <laughs> no. Yes, I do. Um, but um, it's... I mean, the, the intention of the series is to not give us any villain, any one villain that is mustache twirling in a way that we can't reach them on some level. Even John Walker, who is definitely beyond the pale here, they give us that locker room scene. Uh, even Carly, who blew up, uh, you know, a building with people inside of it last week, um, you know, we're still given sympathetic conversations with. Um, Zemo, whatever he may wind up trying to do, you know, all this sort of stuff, like that's the show they're trying to do. The Killmonger was right show. Um, sometimes more successfully, in some places more successfully than others, but that's their attempt, right? Um, they did it with a little cafe scene between Lamar, uh, Battlestar, and uh, and John Walker, too, where mm-hmm. yeah. you know, he's like, would you take it? And I was like, oh, he hasn't he, like injected it yet. And maybe he already had, but he was questioning it and maybe there's hope for him and then no <laughs> no hope i, I think john. he hadn't i think lamar being his like conscience in his head and being like and and giving him that affirmation of like you always make the right choice in the heat of battle and then we see that he doesn't but mm-hmm. um and and it'll be interesting to see if we if we i don't know there's only two episodes left so it's hard to know what they have time for but you know he mentions like earning those medals from the worst day of his life. Are we going to see that day? Are we going to see like what happened in Afghanistan to make John Walker a quote unquote hero? Uh, that might be interesting. Once again, there's only two episodes left, so I don't know. But um, the other thing they need to get to in all of this is that uh, in the trailers, there's like, uh, there appears to be some sort of G20 summit uh, terror attack still coming. Um, and uh I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know how in the closing credits, um, there are, we've talked about this before, I think, but there are title cards that are placeholders. And if someone's in the episode, their name is in there. And if they're not, it's not. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Right? Sharon Carter was that way. Yeah. 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 Florence Kasumba had one until she showed up, um, et cetera, et cetera. Daniel Brühl had one until he showed up. There's like the image is there, but the name isn't there. So after Daniel Brühl, there's, you know, after the Zemo title card or credit card, there's one more after it that we still haven't seen filled in yet. And it the background on it is the GRC logo. So my question is, are we going to see someone associated with the GRC hmm. who is going to show up in one of these last two episodes? Maybe the person running the GRC, maybe the GRC is somehow corrupt and associated with the power broker. Maybe whoever's running the GRC is the power broker. Questions, question mark, question mark, question mark. But I have a theory, and I, but I want to hear your any theory you might have first. I don't have a theory, so let's hear yours. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Thunderbolt Ross. Oh, William okay. Hurt. William Hurt, maybe. There's also possibly an uh, 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 well, I don't want to get us too far down the WandaVision path, but there is reportedly someone in this cast who is not is not leaked out yet who they are. There is reportedly an actor coming. What role that actor will be playing, I don't know. But but we're, the we're, engineer. <laughs> it's Al Pacino as the engineer uh, who also <laughs> runs the GRC and is the power broker. Um, you know, so, uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, 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 uh, episode five is the episode that, like, Malcolm Spellman has said he's excited for. Nate Moore said he was excited for, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, uh, you know, all eyes on the prize next week. Uh, we'll, we'll see what comes of it. But, um, yeah, there's, there's still some big stuff left to come. Um, obviously, I, I think you know, you're right. I mean, I, I think that's a very good guess. Thunderbolt Ross would be an excellent, uh, I mean, and very likely. I mean, maybe. I mean, uh, the idea we've talked, we talked last week about this idea of the Thunderbolts, this like uh, group of villains or antiheroes. You could see John Walker and Zemo uh, and maybe some other people being a part of that. And uh, especially like Ross has from his introduction in the MCU in Hulk been associated with the, the super soldier serum, right? Oh, yes. You know, Mm -hmm. so like if someone were interested in making more super soldier serum, someone who has a lot of opinions about superhero supremacy, as we found out in Captain America Civil War, it might be Ross, you know? So where are you leaving, leaving wild speculation aside? Where are you with uh, is Sharon Carter the power broker this week? I don't know. We didn't get too much of her, but uh, mm-hmm. she got she's got some resources, man. When Sam says, "Have your eye on the sky, keep an eye, keep keep watch over Walker," I was like, "Wow, she 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 summons a lot of uh, material to her cause. She's not just some loner out in the world." So I don't know. Maybe could be or working for the power broker or working. Or pretending to work for the power broker, but still undercover for the CIA, you know? Like, well, let me ask this. Because because they haven't given us the answer one way or another. What do you feel like would be most emotionally satisfying for a character like Sharon? Like, what would you most like to see uh, come of her character? I think the thing we were just discussing, which is that tilt into villainy where somebody's trying to do right, but they end up going wrong. To me, that's the most interesting thing that could happen with her. What do you think? I don't know. I think I think I want to see her get the drop on someone very important. So I'm kind of uh, into the idea of she's pretending and still in league with the CIA. Hmm. That's what I... Not that the CIA has his hands clean, but like that she, I want Sharon always on the up and up. So I would like to see, I would oh, like okay. to see all of this, like uh, an elaborate cover. One vote for do the right thing. One vote for breaking bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, anything else you want to talk? I mean, this is, there's obviously like a lot that happened, but we're I mean, also that in sort the of, sense of she should do the right thing, not the movie. Do the yeah, right thing. But we're like we're smack dab in the middle of the series, so like uh, you know, it's it's all it's all guesswork now. But like, do you have any like anything well, else this episode revealed to you that you want to talk about? Yeah, if you don't, the thing I wonder is like if you're if you're making a mystery out of who the power broker is, then you better satisfy that mystery in some way. You know, either with oh, it's somebody who's in the cast that we've been hanging with for a while, or it's somebody we recognize. Like you only build up a little surprise if you've got a payoff. So it can't just be, it's just some random guy. I think that was the problem that maybe inadvertently developed with WandaVision is they're like, ah, I've got an engineer friend. And everybody's like, ooh, who could that be? And then it turns out just to be 
not anyone of consequence, you know. Why yeah. was that generated as a mystery? And it turns out it wasn't intended as a mystery. It was just not they didn't identify the person because it wasn't anyone recognizable. So Right, right. Don't give us another engineer. No offense to that uh part of the story. But give us either um Al Pacino as the head of CIA or mm-hmm. or Sharon Carter. I don't I definitely don't think it's Zemo at this point. Um because Zemo's whole thing is destroying the super soldier serum. Uh, so there's not a lot of other options as to who it could be in terms of people we've already seen in mm-hmm. in the cast, right? So I I'm, I got my eye on that on that suspiciously blank title card, and I'm hoping it's either filled out with William Hurt's name or someone else really dazzling. Um, I'll be interested to see. Anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> I'm still I'm still stunned into silence by that closing uh, shot, but I yeah. think we covered it. Yeah. Uh really really uh equally devastating oh. that the uh the man Nico, the man who's killed by the the shield is was a fan of Captain America as a kid. Sad. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Killed by that shield. Mm-hmm. Um I guess we should talk about the Dora Milaje in that great battle sequence. Yes. Um, the apartment. Yeah, incredible stuff. I loved seeing them. Like, it's been a while because even though they're technically in Infinity War, we don't, you know, other than um, Okoye Denigrera's character, we didn't really get to see them, like, really, really go at it. And it was just such fun to see them be so good at their jobs. What did you think? I thought they were fantastic. And uh, I thought it was not just beautifully choreographed, the stunt work, the fight sequences, like sometimes with fight sequences, it all feels a little like, like sometimes the Pirates of the Caribbean movies felt this way to me, like too choreographed, too, too, too much ballet and not much threat. And man, when they were, when the Dora Milaje are fighting, I don't expect that they're going to kill anyone or like that this is going to be the end of a character, but like you feel the hit, right? You feel the blunt end of those, uh, uh, are they spears or I know they're tech, the high tech weapons that are beyond just spears, but like the point and the blunt end of that, the staffs they're using to just take these guys down. And I, I thought it also had a lot of political significance, the way John Walker responds to this, to being bested. Oh goes, yeah. They don't even have, what does he say? They're not even superhuman or they're not. They don't even have the serum. They don't even have the serum. Mm-hmm. And to me, it mm-hmm. reminded me of every incel online <laughs> who, like, you know, uh, everybody deals with trolls, but I think women and people of color deal with it disproportionately. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people like that are more angry when they are bested by somebody they consider to be beneath them. Yeah. And I thought you saw a little flash of his misogyny and probably some racism mm-hmm. in John Walker when he was like these uh, uh, fantastic black women who are warriors bested me. They took me out and they uh, – I think you see bitterness in him, not just anger at being defeated, but like a, 
a chip on the shoulder. I mean, and, what do you think? Yeah, no, a thousand percent. And look and look better with a shield than I do. Um, no. Oh, I, yeah. Well, <laughs> then she takes his shield. Like, like she just totally uh, stomps on it and catches yeah. it in the way that Steve Rogers did. Yeah, that oh, was yeah. great. A, a total Steve move that nothing – like nothing we've ever seen from John. Um, yeah, no. It was it, – that I completely agree with your interpretation of that moment. I thought it was really good. And something that we should shout out is that, you know, in my conversation with, with – uh, Carrie Scoggle, the director, she mentioned to me, and this this actually ties back into the Sharon Power Broker thing. I, I forgot to mention this. I'm glad we are back on this track. She told me that it was her idea in the last episode for Sharon Carter to not go into the shipping container, but to stay outside and fight a bunch of people. And Carrie's, like, if you look at Carrie's, uh, you know, filmography, you know, the TV stuff that she's done, she's really interested in, like, highlighting the strength of women. That is something that she is very interested in her career. And so the fact that it was, like, her idea for for Sharon Carter to just clean up uh, in the last week's episode and the fact that she directed the Dora Milaje similarly cleaning up uh, in this episode, I think just sort of speaks to something that she's interested in depicting. Um, and something that I really valued about that is that, I mean, I we I think we saw it in Black Panther, but oftentimes in the MCU and in action films at large, women are often only allowed to fight other women. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you see that in Infinity War. You have to have a female henchman for Thanos that the women have someone to fight. You know what I mean? It's just often like women are paired up with with women. And so watching these women take on these four dudes handily, easily, (laughs) um, was was really incredible. Um, It was. And I think... The move where she's like beep boop bop like and oh, yeah. disconnects uh, Winter Soldier's yeah. arm like I liked that that because it was like like and I also love that she called him White Wolf at the beginning yeah and uh, and James but to me that was I'm not gonna hurt you but because I'm choosing not oh, yeah. to <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, you're lucky I've decided not to hurt you in this I, I am li- in this case literally disarming you yeah so why don't you just back off and i thought that was <laughs> funny and and i also like the way you know he 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 got in i think maybe a little, a little bit unintentionally got into that fracas and uh and and then kind of you know wanted to chill it out de-escalate a little bit but um i really had to laugh at zemo just sipping his whiskey like standing back like he didn't do a dance but it was almost like watching them all fight just sort of like this is fun he was uh, quite enjoying that spectacle and i think uh the difference between how sam and bucky responded to that versus how uh u.s agent responded how john walker responded it really highlighted john walker's mediocrity yeah his petulance yeah 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 is that he was he was bested. And- right. Because, I mean, Sam says something basically like, you don't want to mess with these women, like, <laughs> like out of respect. Like, Sam respects them. We know that Bucky respects them. Um, and like when, even when Bucky's like reattaching his arm and, and sort of like what he's not like, it's not arm I, fall off boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's, he's not, it's not like, I can't believe I was bested by a girl. Do you know what I mean? It was just, it's just sort of like, 
damn it. <laughs> well, that's something my arm can do, apparently. Also, that move reminded me a lot of, I don't know if you ever watched Xena Warrior Princess, but Xena Warrior Princess was forever mm. using pressure points on the body to yeah. like paralyze people while she fought them. That's what it reminded mm-hmm. me of. So. It was, it's like smiting, f- fighting smarter rather yeah. than harder. You know, like. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, but to that, to the other point about the, about it being the director's choice to remove uh, Sharon from the shipping container. And the reason that she gave uh, is that there were just too many people in the lab and she needed to have someone outside the lab. So she decided to be Sharon. Mm. I was using Sharon not going into the shipping container as like a big clue that she might be the power broker. Mm. And the fact that it was less about that and more about, uh, Carrie being like this, (laughs) this. Uh, space is too tight for this many people. Put her outside. Um, well, you know, or she might be, you know, serving you a little red herring there. Oh, she might. She always, you know, you they, know. they they can always be uh, leading me by the oh, nose. No. She didn't go in because that scientist would have recognized her. Like, uh, just but I didn't, but that's but that's not the question I asked her. I didn't say hmm. why didn't Sharon go into the shipping container. I said I loved Sharon's fight, and she said, "Well, that was my idea." She offered it. Ah, that's okay. the only reason why I think it might not be a deflection, but it might. But she, you know, she might be playing four dimensional chess. I, I get best. Well, I get best at, at four dimensional chess all the time. So the listeners have an advantage because I haven't heard your interview. It's true. It's true. It's Even true. Even though I'm following it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mean, th- here we are. This, I will say, overall, this show is still like a little wonky to me in in tone, uh, shifting. Uh, but something that Nate Moore uh said in um, my interview with him is that episode five is where he feels like all the pieces start to slide into place together. All these things that feel a little disparate might feel unified in episode five. Uh, and so he was like, he was like, episode four might be the one that gets a lot of people talking. He's like, because of a certain heel turn. And I guess he was talking about what John Walker does. But he, for him and for Malcolm Spellman, episode five is the one they're really excited for people to watch. So um, therefore, I am really excited to watch it, you know, and see what comes next. Um, all right. Anything else we want to mention before we go? I think that covers it. I think we did it, Anthony. Good job, <laughs> us. Um, all right. We will We will uh, see you here back next week. Um, until then, Anthony Breskin, where can folks find your great work? You can uh, hear me going on and on at allaboutropesbeer.net <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at vanityfair.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Rothis. Uh, Anthony's got some great stuff up on VF.com, so I really do encourage that you check it out. Um, and we will be back here next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.